With your connection to local agriculture, I'm Joanna Guza. I'm excited to be joined with the Wisconsin outstanding young farmer, Jake Haywish. He is the owner of Haywish Homestead Dairy in Fremont, Wisconsin. And we're going to learn more about the farm, her genetics, technology, conservation efforts, and future goals. Well, Jake, if you could first start off by telling me about your farm and then your role on the farm. So our farm is a fifth generation farm. I am the fifth generation. It, uh, my dad and uncle, they had farmed across the road from one another previous to 1999. And then in 1999, they decided to um, put their herds together and build a freestyle barn and, and uh, a flat barn parlor at one of the locations, which was actually the homesteaded farm. So, and then in 2008, we built a Southern Exposure Heifer Barn. 2013, we built a calf barn, which allowed us to feed pasteurized milk, uh, which was waste waste milk that we had been previously uh, just pouring down the drain. So that was a win-win. Uh, 2015, we added a 3 million gallon manure storage and uh, revamped our manure system as well. Now we're you know, we've had a few natural disasters here, so we've been rebuilding some of the buildings. But uh, other than that, yeah, that's some of the history. So my role is uh, operations manager, I like to call myself, I guess. Keep everything moving in all facets. You know, majority of the milking and stuff is done by my father. He kind of runs the parlor along with some full-time employees. And my wife takes care of the scheduling for a lot of that labor. And then... Uh, all the other, you know, cropping and harvests of, you know, spring, all that kind of stuff. I'll take care of that. Uh, manure application, we do have our own uh, drag line system. So we take care of, of that ourselves as well. And we have our own baler, which we, majority of our hay with. So those are all the, all the other things that we got to do to keep rolling. And what's the size of your farm? How many cows are you milking and young stock and acres that you run? We are milking 140 pretty well year-round consistently, and those are uh, registered Holsteins. And then we have all the young stock here on site as well, and we have about 70, 70 to 100 uh, beef cross, Holstein crosses that will be, you know, all the way from birth to the market weight on the farm at all times as well. And that's the facility across the road, uh, my uncle's old farm. That's the one that... Uh, the steers end up at so that works out well. So you mentioned a lot of people that are involved in the farm, your wife and your dad. Can you explain like why dairy farming and you know the beef operation is such a team effort? To do it well, uh, you need to spend a lot of time, you know, doing each thing and one person can't can't do it all. So we have to, you know, pick our specialty or our spot on the farm that we're most capable of doing or enjoy the most and uh, just really dive in and, and do our best in that area. And that, in my mind, uh, you know, is a, is a recipe for success. So we're, we're not on a very big scale, but uh, if you look at other successful bigger dairies or bigger companies, that's the way they kind of break it down as well. So, you know, a team effort. Definitely is a team effort. Now, can you share more about the genetics of your herd? And this is even, I have a lot of farmers that listen to this. So if you could kind of share from, you know, their perspective when they're looking at their genetics and what they might want to do for their herd, can you share a little bit more of what you've, the avenue that you've taken? So I give my dad the most credit for this, I guess, as far as starting it, but 
probably 15 years ago, he read an article in the Horse Dairyman about A2, A2 milk. It was uh, across in Europe, I think, at the time, and there was thought that it would come to the U.S. So at that point, he just decided that we'll start working our way towards that. Knowing nothing else, he we basically just decided to start breeding with A2, A2 bulls only, which 15 years ago, they weren't, weren't testing for it almost. So you'd have to kind of dig into the stud and figure out if they if they had the A2A2 gene or not. So anyways, progressing into like 2017 and 18, right in there, we, or I decided that we wanted to register our herd. Upon registering, we were genomic testing all of our calves um, at a young age. So then we had a pool of information that allowed us to be very specific on who was getting bred to, you know, we knew who, who the A2 heifers were now. So now those are going to get an A2 Holstein bull. And if they have any A1 genetics in them, they're going to get bred to a beef bull, which was perfect for the time it was because it gave us a byproduct then of a beef Holstein cross, which was when it started to become popular. It was We were a little bit before it started to become popular, but we we're like, well, this is a, this is the perfect way. And we were able to kind of start a direct market pre-COVID. And then when COVID um, actually came, you know, our direct market just doubled, tripled, which basically pushed us, pushed our family into some, you know, like it's growing so fast, we're going to have to do something to sustain it. So we brought in our work or, you know, started an LLC and started working with our, our neighbor cash copping family that we're very close with and partnered with them. And and started our uh, a second you know meat business, which which really helped the farm. So getting back to the genetics part, basically by by genomic testing, we were able to zero in on those, and we were able to get our herd because our goal would be, is to get to a two a two every everything on the farm is is that has that genetic, which I can explain that a little better. A two a two is basically the beta casein or the protein molecule in the milk that allows a person that is, you know, thinks they're lactose intolerant or has a hard time digesting milk. It doesn't have the same repercussions as A1 or A1 A1 milk does typically. Um, and the Holstein breed is mutated. Like the Guernsey breed is not. So all Guernseys at this point are still A2A2, but the Holsteins, they can be A1A1, A1A2, or A2A2. So currently like one cow away from every animal on the farm being A2A2. So we're uh, able to market some of our milk actually through our co-op. They're making cheese out of it. And so that's one day's worth of milk a month roughly is what um, we're able to, or what we're moving right now mm-hmm. of that. What technology do you use on the farm? Technology, you can kind of go any direction with it. But I guess for us, we started using um, Bovisync which is a herd software program that is cloud-based. So it can be accessed from, you know, any mobile unit or, or any computer at, at any time, uh, which is big for me. Uh, there's some other uh, herd softwares out there that are just one, one desktop or, or one hard drive, which kind of limits the access to it and, and how, you know, you can see wherever you are, which is, which is big for me. So then uh, the, the next one we, I would say we use is uh, cow manager, which is um, basically an activity monitoring, monitoring system that tracks rumination and activity for heat detection and things of that nature. And Bovisync and cow manager 
interface very well. They're both um, cloud-based programs. So every 15 minutes, they're dumping information in and out to each other, which is great. And then the third one I would say is our feed software system or soft, our feed software, I guess, which is OneMilk and it's spelled M-I-L-C and they're based out of uh, California, but that is a also a cloud-based program. And the you know it's it's a mobile program, so you download the app. Um, the person that's feeding in the skid steer or or payloader has has a phone in there that is telling them how much to add of what what ingredient. And then the person in the tractor uh, has another phone, and it's really helped. I typically do a lot of the feeding in the morning. You know that's when we when we do feed and. It's allowed me to feel confident with that it's getting mixed and I can check up on it. Everything's getting done the same whether I'm here actually physically doing it or not. So it's given me that, you know, piece of security, I guess. Can you share an example of how it's kind of been a game changer? I know when I talk to other farms that have implemented different software programs that help them, you know, more with the, I feel like the activity monitors that they've said that's really changed their management styles and things that they're doing to make sure that their cows are getting exceptional care. Can you maybe share an experience that you've had with utilizing this different technology, whether it's the, you know, the cow manager, the feed software, whatever that is, that's really changed your farm? For us, I would say it is probably the cow manager as well, uh, the activity system. Um, there's multiple reasons that you, you know, a dairyman decides or can start justifying putting a program or a or a, a system in like that. And for us, our reproduction wasn't where we wanted it to be. We had been struggling with it. We between our vet and and the amount of shots and and um, programs we've been we were trying to implement and and just weren't getting the results. Uh, getting pregnancies out of out of our cows so we basically decided we're going to take the jump because everybody you talk to says it's the best thing why didn't we do it sooner we felt our reproduction can't get any worse and it most likely is going to get better so it's going to be a great thing and yeah it's it's uh took us from you know the um, low 20s for a preg rate to the i would say 30 31 percent preg rate it's done awesome things and and really helped us breed cows exactly when they need to be bred and and cut our shot protocols down by oh probably 90 percent i mean the amount of shots we used to give on on shot days were <laughs> 10 to 15 and now it's one or two if we're lucky so it's been a game changer and and even to it just in return giving really good care to your animals and your business I know you mentioned being involved in like the feeding and the field work type aspects. So I'd like to transition now kind of talking about some of the conservation practices that you have implemented on your farm. I know when I was reading about the 2024 Wisconsin Outstanding Farmer, it talked about no-till and cover crops. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those conservation practices you do? My dad was always big in planting oats uh, probably 15 years ago, like we get corn salad job. He wanted oats out there. We want this thing to be green. And his thought was it's green manure. It's a natural, natural um, source of, of energy for the next crop. And that's kind of what got it started for me, you know, got, got us thinking about it. And then all over the years, the FSA is always pushing for programs to help you, you know, get into it or try it and we were, we were always very very well adapted to that we we wanted to do what was best for the soil and it's all a learning process it's 
it's not something that happens overnight and basically we've transitioned from oats to a winter rye on on all of our corn acres on the dairy side now i mentioned earlier the the family we work with through the meat business or our hns tasty acres the steinbachs we've been working with them sharecropping acres and they have a over there i should say we we do a strict wheat corn bean rotation and what that winter wheat crop allows us to do so that's once every three years for every acre uh, you harvest that in in late july we we're able to do an inline rip ripping procedure to the field which doesn't disturb the top it just puts a slit in it but yet it lifts the compaction out and then we do a drag line manure application and then plant a multi-species cover crop in there. So brassicas, radish, turnip, winter rye for the for the spring to come back. Once you get those cover crops planted, like the first week in August, and just watch them just completely blow up and, and turn into this huge field of biomass and all the great things that, you know, make me smile now. It, it makes me cringe to walk past the field or, you know, drive past the field that's just bare, bare dirt because, well, when it rains, we lose uh, soil from, from it just gets carried away if it's a hard enough rain and uh, the wind does, does more than we think as well. So having that root mass, that biomass on top just protects, protects the soil so we don't, we don't lose it. Have you experimented with any ap- different application rates of cover crops? I know I've heard some farms kind of going a little bit lighter if they're not using it for forage. What has been your experience with, you know, testing out different uh, application rates? We've definitely been toying around with that. The way that we do it on the dairy is for our um, establishment method is through a, a just a, a spreader, a, a fertilizer spreader. So we are putting that on a little heavier than we probably would need to, but because it's not going through a no-till drill, you know, we don't get quite perfect germination and it's late in the year. Um, so so basically the combine or the chopper after those, it's we just spread it on and we use it, you know, a true vertical tillage tool to incorporate that and basically get it germinating. But that we're we're running about a bushel to a bushel and a half. Now, when you go back to the winter wheat stubble fields, those we've pulled the the winter rye all the way back to 20 pounds per acre. So that's a substantial difference for the winter rye. And then the other multi-species are the the rapeseed or brassica, tillage radish. Those we, we keep usually under a pound for the tillage radish. And there has been clover in it, and that's at a been a, at about a two pound rate. But for the coming years, we are going to pull out the clover because we've, after walking fields year in and year out, it's like where where is this clover? And and sometimes it comes back in the spring, but and honestly, the clover is one of the more expensive pieces of that cover crop. So we are going to um, eliminate it from that mix in, in in august now there may be another place for it if we can drone apply it to you know standing corn earlier in the, in the season and it gets established maybe that's a place for it but we haven't quite figured out exactly where that clover piece is best used yet i talked with some farmers and kind of reflecting on the growing season last year they had um i can't remember if it was winter rye or uh, winter wheat probably 
doesn't matter, but they were talking about when it came to when to terminate it and how last year was just a really unique year that if you didn't terminate it in time, you were left with a really dry area and then it made a hard, it, you had to uh, be planting your corn a lot deeper. Can you share if you had a similar experience and how you kind of worked through that challenge? Yeah, I would say ditto to exactly what you said. We we learned the hard way last year because we had kind of a our area in a I would say a five mile radius or or whatnot from where all of our acres are here was very rain deprived. We had pretty pretty significant drought, but we weren't in years past. We had had always burned off our cover crop or our yeah cover crop I guess, but you typically it's winter rye is the the main one that comes back in the spring. And we were very diligent about burning that off in a timely manner, sometimes pre-plant, um, you know, or, or, you know, within a week after planting at the most. But last year, you know, we, some fields, we did that too. We terminated it at planting and some, we just put the pre-emerge down and came back and, and terminated the rye. But I think the other part of last year was things were off to kind of an early start. The rye was taller at planting than it normally had been years past. Um, so I guess for us, what we what we learned or what we're taking out of last year is we need to have that rye terminated before it's a foot tall. Because for one, it I mean it's a it's a good thing, but it makes it hard for that corn crop, especially in a drought stressed year those rye plants are all using the same, you know, moisture we need, the the nitrogen, the all the other things. And we did see our corn, well, and it wasn't just because of the rye being there, but we didn't have rain for 40 days after we planted either. So it's just a very, very slow start. We did have one field that was new to us last year that we did conventional tillage on um, just to get it smoothed out. And there was some tiling that was done in that field previous. And that field um, last year was was better than all of our no-till fields. But like you always say, you can we can do exactly what we did last year, this coming year, and we'll have totally different results just because of the weather. You need to learn something, but you don't need to just stop doing it. So Right. It was a good learning experience. I think across the whole state, I talked to farmers that were in Western Wisconsin and here and everyone had that different struggle. And it was, it was really, you know, unique to see all the, the crop consultants and the farmers all working together to recognize, okay, what's happening now? What do we need to do differently? And, and then not knowing that you were going to have, you know, almost a month, you know, or over a month worth of no rain. I mean, those are th- things that are hard, but it just shows that this is a really hard profession. And it's really cool to see that you are the fifth generation, Jake, and that you are, you know, carrying on the farm. I have just a couple more questions for you. When we look at this spring can you share some of your planting plans and goals that you have for planting this year planting this spring we actually are going to go into the the soybean plenish world or or hyaluric soybeans there's a market for them but i have dairy cows or we have dairy cows so we're actually going to keep that process in-house we're going to roast our own hyaluric soybeans and keep the oil in them and try to you know reduce our input costs from a soybean meal standpoint with those beans that will will raise homegrown so that's one thing that we we have on the horizon for this coming growing season for us it's it's silage corn um, our silage corn is going to get uh, fungicide we've we've seen very good results for silage corn 
specifically. It's not necessarily a silage corn variety, but it's going to be chopped for silage. Now the corn that is going to get combined or or you know sold as as a grain product, we haven't seen as much return or benefit to putting fungicide on those. So that's something that we probably aren't going to continue to do just because of the results we've seen. Side of that, you know, a lot of the same, I guess. One thing with corn is on our corn planter, we will be two by two um, nitrogen applicating. So two inches on each side of the corn kernel, two inches down, um, which last year was just, so they call it two by two by two. And last year we were two by two. So just fertilizer on one side of the seed. Now we'll have it on both sides of the seed to try to just early growth, you know, as healthy as that plant and how quick of a start that plant can get. And then we are also working on our closing wheel system uh, to make sure all of our trenches are closed. Because I think that was another thing last year that we really struggled with. Um, Typically you have rain if you make any mistakes during planting that will, you know, you know, kind of cover up your mistakes while you don't have rain. Our mistakes all showed very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do some adjustments to our closing wheel system on our planter for corn. Soybeans, we, we've been working with uh, rye uh, planting into those green. Um, so the majority of the soybeans probably will get planted that way and we'll terminate them with the pre-emerge herbicide, mm-hmm. you know, at planting pretty much. So yeah. kind of- you do have a really busy spring, it seems like ahead. And now just like overall farm goals, what are some things that you want to do, whether that's this year or within the next five years, 10 years, what goals do you have for the farm? My goal or our goals, uh, H&S Tasty Acres goals, we kind of want to to grow our, our beef market um, in the next few years to see what, what kind of how big we can get that clientele base. And if we can get the market for meat, then we would push to process our milk, have it processed somewhere privately, bring it back as a, as a, as a A2A2 product and, and market it to those, to that clientele base that we've, we've grown. And then if things work out and and go well, you know, we, we would um, entertain processing, processing that, our own milk and and uh you know if our herd size needs to needs to get smaller for a, a period of time to accommodate the, the amount of you know customers we have we'd be willing to do that but what that gives us is the control and the in the end product or, or the you know the margin we have we have it all within under under our roof and and can control that because right now we're you know dairy farmers cash grain farmers we're all price takers you know, even beef, we're price takers if we're sending it to a conventional market. And, you know, so the more the more we can do to keep it keep it um, where we're setting the price and we have our customers and they all trust us and, and all those things, that's that's huge. You know, it in my mind, it's it's we do this or we have to get big or we have to have more cows, more land, you know, to stay viable. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you know, our choice is to try to stay small and have a niche and, and build their own market. Right. Well, we'll make sure that we put the email in this description and when we share it on our website so that it's easy, easy for people to get in contact with you. We've been talking with Jake Haywich. He's the 2024 Wisconsin Outstanding Young Farmer. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. And that's your connection to agriculture. I'm Joanna Guza.